and welcome to our broadcast. I'm your host today, Matt Colmia. I'm the Executive Director of Digital Strategy at Providence's Digital Innovation Group. Uh, as a reminder uh, for all these, the information provided during this event is for information purposes only. If you do have medical questions, please contact your primary care doctor. Maybe it's a Providence doctor, maybe it's not, just saying. Uh, let's go ahead and, uh, and we can get started. Uh, so I'm really excited to have as our guest today, my colleague, Dr. Ari Robachek. He's the Chief Medical Analytics Officer at Providence. Ari, how are you today? I am very well. <clears throat> I was just looking at those, those nice uh, photos of us that opened the presentation and thinking how kind of aspirational those are now. I know, my hair's a lot longer. <laughs> it's just the COVID. Yeah, I was definitely better groomed back then too. Mm -hmm. uh, so to get us started, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you do in your role with Providence? Yeah, sure. Um, by background, I'm an infectious disease doctor and a hospital epidemiologist. And for the last five years, I've been chief medical analytics officer at Providence. Um, so that means that I'm lucky enough to um, head up a, a really amazing team of data engineers, data scientists, um, clinicians who are experts in working with healthcare data and in working with the people who need to consume healthcare data. And the, the fundamental um, idea of our team is we collect a huge amount of data in the context of caring for patients. Would it be great if we could find ways to use this data to improve the care that we provide to our patients? And so that's what that's what my, my team does in the sphere of analytics. Um, by background, I um, spent many years doing uh, epidemiology research using large clinical data sets. And um, about half a year ago, I was actually asked to expand my role at Providence to step into um, a role where I also have some responsibility for helping to support research around the organization, which has um, created interesting opportunities. It's been, it's been a fascinating time to be somebody involved with the data, both from a, an operations and a research, research perspective. And I can vouch that that team is an excellent group. Um, I've worked with them myself a couple of times. I know in the past, uh, you know, a couple of years, obviously your team has started to do some really incredible work around research analytics during the COVID pandemic. Um, can you talk a little bit about what some of the biggest takeaways you and your team have uncovered from studying this COVID data since the beginning? Well, I feel like the first thing that I'll say is something I say to a lot of people that if, if somebody claims to be a COVID expert, don't listen to what they say. Nobody's a COVID expert. This is a this is a new this is a new disease, a very young disease, and um, we're constantly learning about it. I also think that um, we have an obligation to continuously learn. I did a um, a talk a few days ago for folks in our supply chain division who were concerned about getting vaccinated, and one of the questions that I got was, um, "Are the vaccines experimental?" and um, you know, my response was something that I feel is the case about almost all things COVID. So to, to the vaccines particularly, are they in and of themselves experimental? Well, depends what you mean by experimental. If by experimental, you mean something that we don't really know a lot about at this point and hasn't been adequately tested, I would say at this point, you know, 1.9 billion people in the world have received a COVID vaccine under really intense surveillance. So certainly we've applied at least the same level of scrutiny to vaccines and vaccine side effects as we do to anything in medicine. So in that sense, they're not experimental, but 
more importantly, in the sense of, is there still a lot that's not yet understood about this disease and the best way to combat it so that we should continue to use the tools at our disposal to gather data and work on better understanding the effectiveness of the vaccines and um, the impact on the pandemic? Absolutely, yes. And I think that that's, that's true with everything. So, so for me, the sort of most fundamental takeaway is that there is a lot that we don't yet know. And the vaccine has surprised us right from the beginning in many ways. And I think will continue to surprise us. So stay thoughtful. Right. I said, stay if I said the vaccine, I mean, the learn. virus has surprised us from the beginning and the virus will continue to surprise us. Yeah, absolutely. So stay thoughtful, keep learning more research and more learning ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is true in so many different spheres. You know, early on, there were a lot of predictions about what was going to happen with this virus. Was it going to be this pandemic? Was it going to be a one wave pandemic or like a two wave pandemic, more like the maybe 1918 influenza pandemic? And what are we in wave five, six? Depends on your counting, depends on where you are. Um, you know, likewise, I and many others predicted a, a tsunami of cases coming into hospitals early on um, without really understanding what the impact of social distancing and sort of non-pharmacological interventions was going to be. And so many of us were worried that something incredibly dire was going to happen to our hospitals. We'd be totally overwhelmed. And thankfully, that didn't happen. So, you know, in both directions, uh, how severe the the um, I and many others were wrong about how severe things were going to be up front. Um, and I and many others were wrong in sort of trying to predict what was going to happen long term. And so, um, you know, that's one area where there's there's still a ton that we need to learn. Understanding how the virus is spread is a you know, we still don't have an amazing understanding of how it's spread. I think one of the most important findings in the last year or so has been in the importance of the role of super spreaders, where most people have the virus, probably spread it to very few individuals, whereas a small number of individuals account for a lot of the spread. There's a lot we don't understand about why that would be the case, and understanding that's going to be incredibly important for the future. Um, you know, understanding from a social point of view, the differential effect of the virus on um, people who uh, are Latino, Latina, for example, is meaning the, the sort of larger numbers um, and, uh, and sort of more impact in Latino, Latina communities. Why did that happen? And, and what, can, what does this teach us about healthcare in America in general? Um, there's a lot, I think, that uh, that we've learned as well about human behaviors in the context of medical scares that we didn't anticipate. For example, we saw huge drop-offs in the number of patients coming to our emergency departments for a whole variety of different diseases unrelated to COVID when we were in COVID surges, and that probably contributed to higher mortality for non-COVID diseases. Um, happy to talk more about that after. And um, so that was a surprise. And um, likewise, a surprise, at least to me, has been the amount of controversy around um, various infection prevention methods like masking or social distancing or even vaccination. And so sort of the human behavioral and uh, kind of attitudes and sometimes sort of political elements um, that have gotten 
combined into the scientific discussion, I think have been have been um, interesting and and very eye opening for me. So, and I think there's a lot to learn there about again how people work, how society works, and how to be better prepared for for challenges in the future. And I think um, one more big surprise to me has been in the area of um, the vaccine effectiveness. I think that if you would ask me, you know. 12 months ago, are we going to have a vaccine that has the level of effectiveness of the vaccines that we have today that was going to already have been made available by December of last year? I would have been, I would have said, I, I doubt something like that is going to happen. So, so that the, the sort of rapidity of the vaccine um, manufacturer has using new technologies has been, has been another sort of amazing thing. And I, I think there's, there's still a lot that we're, we're trying to figure out. So lots to learn, as you said. Yeah, your, your comment early about um, uh, how a lot of our guesses and estimates were incorrect in the early days. And you know, we, we still run up against that. Reminds me of a quote that I wish I could attribute, um, but it's that all projections are wrong. Some projections are useful. And I'm sure you've run across this many times, but um, I think in many ways, some of those projections around you know, hospitals being overwhelmed uh, encouraged a lot of people to be really safe. Uh, and it didn't happen, but it was um, really crucial during those early days to have that kind of quick response. And, you know, still public health uh, projections like that have been useful in so many ways. I'm sure you've seen this a lot in your work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think that actually, well, two thoughts about that. I think you are absolutely right that many people very early on in the pandemic became extremely careful as a result of concerns about hospitals getting overwhelmed, which was great, although sometimes people took it too far. And so as I was mentioning, we saw a big reduction. So in the first pandemic wave, so way back at the beginning, you know, in the, in the prehistoric era, um, I'm talking about like March, April of 2020, um, in Providence hospitals, we saw um, something like a 50% reduction in patients getting admitted for acute non-COVID reasons. So I'm talking about heart attacks and strokes and gastrointestinal bleeds, like things that people were probably still having, but weren't coming to the hospital for. And I think that some of that was because people were just so sort of scared about the pandemic and also logically thinking, well, if, if I'm going to catch COVID anywhere, it's going to be in a hospital. So people didn't come to hospitals. And, and what we've actually, um, what I and uh, some co-investigators recently published on in the Journal of Hospital Medicine was um, the finding that in the context of sort of dips in people coming to the emergency department that coincided with the public being very worried about picking up COVID in hospitals, we saw increases in mortality. So more people, I'm not talking about COVID, increases in mortality among people with heart attacks and strokes and gastrointestinal bleeds and cancer complications um, and a whole variety of other diseases. Um, so, you know, that, that actually prompted interesting questioning about, well, are hospitals really unsafe? Are people reasonable in avoiding hospitals in the context of pandemic surges? I was able to do a study with um, Jessica Ridgway, an epidemiologist colleague of mine at the University of Chicago, 
where we actually looked at patients who came to Providence emergency departments and either did or didn't spend time in the ED together with a COVID patient. So these were non-COVID patients that came to the ED that either did or didn't spend time in proximity to a COVID patient. And then we looked to see whether or not there was a difference in the rate of actually getting sick with COVID down, downstream. And what we found was that there was actually no difference. So in other words, um, at least in um, Providence emergency departments, there wasn't a difference in the rate of picking up COVID, whether you did or didn't spend time adjacent or near somebody with COVID, suggesting that it's actually probably if, if you are experiencing you know, crushing chest pain, or you're, 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 uh, you've noticed that your stools are black and tarry, or um, you know something else untoward is happening with your health. Uh, definitely, you should be coming to the hospital. Uh, so, anyway, I, I with the yes, I'm agreeing with you that uh, concern in the public was a very positive thing for controlling the pandemic in those early days. Incredibly valuable thing, but there were definitely individuals who suffered as a result of being overcautious. Uh, yeah, ab absolutely, Ari. And I I'm certainly, uh, uh, we certainly saw some sort of, um, where did all the heart attacks go fears early on? And it's um, um, really tragic to see that some folks uh, didn't get the care that they needed. Um, to pivot a little bit from sort of what we've analyzed in the past and looking ahead a little bit, you know, now we're seeing the rise of Delta or Mu or whichever one is, is coming up next at this point. But what does the data tell us about where we might see challenges, differences with new variants, where the new variants are coming from um, as we sort of look ahead to what might be, I mean, fingers crossed not, but the next wave? Yeah. Um, you know, viruses adapt like uh, like any other um, reproducing organism, and um, the way they adapt is by developing random mutations. So if you have a billion virus, you're going to have some number of those viruses, some number of copies of those viruses that are going to be a little bit different from the original version of that virus. Most of those random mutants aren't advantageous and end up dying off and not reproducing a whole lot, but some um, will, through random chance, hit upon a mutation that makes them in some way have a reproductive advantage. For, by reproductive advantage, I really mean they just do a better job of spreading from one person to another. And there are really two things that give a virus a reproductive advantage. One is if it becomes more contagious, and number two, if it develops the ability to better evade prior immunity. And prior immunity can come from an old infection with COVID, or it can come from having been vaccinated against COVID. So what we see happening now is variants emerging. When we say variants emerge, what really happens is that these mutations are happening all the time. The more virus you have, the more mutations you're good, the more mutants you're going to have. Most mutants, as I was saying, don't provide an advantage. But when a virus emerges, when a variant emerges, what that really means is that there is a mutant of this virus that has a reproductive advantage, either because it's become more contagious or because it's gotten 
the ability to at least to some extent evade prior immunity. And um, so in the case of Delta, what happened was um, at some point, a mutant um, developed the, some, some changes in its um, core genetics that allowed it to become much more contagious. Whether or not it's more, um, whether or not it makes people sicker is still an open question, but that's actually not valuable from a reproductive advantage point of view, making people sicker. Generally not. Generally though, um, reproductive advantage comes from making people more contagious or from evading the immune system. So Delta definitely is more contagious. Um, there's at least one study suggesting that the average person carrying the Delta variant of COVID carries a thousand times more virus in their nasal passages than somebody who is just sort of walking around with a pre-Delta variant of COVID. So if it's more contagious, it spreads better. And if it spreads better, um, eventually you're gonna have a larger fraction of the people who are infected with COVID being infected with that particular mutant. And so what we saw really between June and July of this summer is a complete pivot from in the United States having other variants of the virus being dominant to Delta sort of eating everybody's lunch. So because Delta spread so much more rapidly from one person to another, um, we're at a point now when almost a hundred, almost a hundred percent of the strains of virus of COVID that are sequenced these days turn out to be the Delta variant. Um, is Delta better at evading our immune system? So that I think is an incredibly important question and one that hasn't been adequately answered. But um, one of the neat things that uh, we're able to do at a system like ours because of our scale is actually look at many, many tens of thousands of people being admitted to the hospital with COVID and without COVID and um, using information about prior vaccination status in those individuals to estimate vaccine effectiveness. And so it does from our preliminary work look like the Delta variant um, does have at least some ability not a huge amount, but at least some ability to evade um, prior immunity gained through vaccination better than older variants. Meaning practically um, vaccines still work, but they don't work as well against Delta as they do against prior variants. So what's gonna happen with the next one that comes up, Mu, for example, which has multiple mutations that, uh, that may confer some immune escape, that may confer more contagiousness, um, you know, we don't know, but these these viruses are in are in competition with each other. And if mu ends up being more successful than delta, that means it's got one or one of two or both of greater ability to escape the immune system or more contagiousness. Again, usually these things don't get more uh, don't become more deadly just because that doesn't doesn't tend to provide them with a with a survival advantage. And so, okay, if, if I'm hearing that right, then um, evolutionarily speaking, the virus has an incentive to get more contagious, to reproduce more, but yeah. doesn't necessarily have the incentive to become more deadly. Does, exactly. does that mean that we should expect future variant, variants to be potentially continually less deadly, even if they get more contagious? I mean, eventually, could this be, could this look something more like the flu? Um, I think, I think that's very plausible. I think that um, 
you know, deadliness is, I'd say, kind of orthogonal to its reproductive advantages, meaning it's it's not especially relevant one way or another. You don't want to be the virus that kills people in one second because then they're not going to spread it a lot, right? Um, beyond that, though, it, its deadliness doesn't directly relate to its survival advantage. So could it become more deadly just by random chance? Yes, it could be. But there isn't a reason to believe that a more deadly version of the virus would spread better than its brothers and sisters that are that are less deadly. So I, I, two things are happening. One is that the virus is trying to evade our immune system. Um, and again, may or may not become more deadly. Again, that doesn't provide it a survival advantage. Um, and two, we're seeing as collectively, we're seeing this virus more and more times. Our immune systems are exposed to it more and more times, either through the vaccine or through prior infections. And there are many people now who have had multiple rounds of prior infections with COVID. And so what tends to happen in situations like this is that the virus is trying to figure out how to spread better. Um, we are trying to figure out how to prevent the virus from making us very sick. And so sometimes an equilibrium is reached where it's almost like we and the virus agree to uh, an arrangement where we'll tolerate the virus in our world so long as it doesn't make us very sick. And, you know, at that point, like the flu or like, frankly, other coronaviruses, several of which are just, you know, seasonal cold viruses, um, we, we eventually get on with our lives and, and so does it. Um, as it becomes very good at spreading through, you know, nursery schools and, uh, and you know, military installations, et cetera, but without making people especially sick. So I think that that's um, one very plausible scenario about what could happen over time. How long is it going to take to get to that point? I don't know. And back to my earlier point about the virus keeps surprising us. Am I going to guarantee that that's what's going to happen? I think I'd be foolish to do that. Absolutely. And uh, we have a social question from uh, the LinkedIn Live, which sure a lot of us have is how can we get ahead of the variants? <sighs> so, uh, you know, we, we try to do that by um, building a vaccine that is supposed to be as variant resistant as possible. What I mean by that is the vaccine targets. So the vaccine causes us to make an immune response to a part of the virus that the virus cannot do without. That's the spike protein, which is necessary for sticking onto our cells and then injecting it inside human cells. So it needs the spike protein. And so what we've done is tried to get ahead of the variants we knew were coming by picking a spot on the virus that can't change too much to induce our immune response to. The problem is it can still change a decent amount. How much can it change? We don't really know without totally losing its effectiveness as a virus. That we don't know. So that's the sort of best strategy that we have to get ahead of variants. The other really important thing, so uh, just to be super clear then, um, we try in manufacturing a vaccine, designing a vaccine to get ahead of variants by trying to induce immunity against the part of the virus that the virus can't do without, but that's not 100% effective. The other next best way to get ahead of variants is try this hypothetical. Imagine I could snap my fingers and give everybody in the world immunity to COVID right now, either through prior infection or through vaccination. 
doesn't matter. Everybody had immunity to it. If that happened, the all of a sudden the virus has nowhere to go. And when it has nowhere to go, there are way smaller amounts of the virus in the world, right? Theoretically, if everybody's immune, then the virus completely disappears. That's not exactly going to happen. But if only a small number of people are susceptible to the virus, this virus is only circulating in a small number of people, which means that the number of copies of the virus is small, which means that the number of mutants is small, which means that the probability of a random mutation finding exactly the shape of the spike protein that's going to evade our immune system is also small. So the faster we can get to a high level of population immunity, the more we narrow the opportunity for the virus to make mutations of itself that might find the key to getting around our immune systems. Hopefully that makes some sense. A good vaccinated, everybody. Um, you see, you just summarized in two seconds what I was trying <laughs> to say in five minutes. Yes. Yeah, but you said it's more intelligent. Um, so I've asked you to kind of wear your epidemiologist hat which I know you wear very well for most of this conversation. For the last couple of minutes, I want you to put back on your kind of Providence head of medical analytics hat and talk a little bit about, you know, what is it meant for Providence to have the kind of team that it has ready to do this work? And how has doing this work within COVID advanced the analytics work that you've, you've you know, built over, over the years? I'm so, I'm so proud of our analytics and our research teams. Um, some examples of the kinds of things that we've been able to do. So um, back in May, I think it was, one of our local departments of public health approached one of our local infectious disease doctors and said, hey, I've seen a report or two of myocarditis, so that's heart inflammation happening in young people following COVID vaccination. Is that a thing? And um, within about three weeks, we were able to do an analysis of more than 2 million people who had received the COVID vaccine inside our system and determined that yes, myocarditis heart inflammation is happening in young people more frequently than we expect. No, it's not happening very often. So we estimated it was happening in about one per 100,000. And for all the individuals that we identified with myocarditis, they all ended up recovering well. And so we were able to, to publish that in the, in the Journal of the American Medical Association. So something that was sort of immediately sort of useful to clinical communities and answered an incredibly important question that, that, the, that, that because of our size and our analytics infrastructure, we were able to jump on right away. At this moment, um, we have a team that like literally at this moment is hard at work studying vaccine effectiveness and identifying which patients specifically are at high risk of breakthrough infections, because those are probably the individuals where if somebody's going to get a booster, those are the ones who should be getting boosters. So again, we have really powerful data that we can bring to bear and using sort of neat epidemiological techniques. Um, we also have a um, an AI-based tool that we released into clinical practice a week or two ago that's specifically designed to help emergency department physicians um, with patients who have COVID, come to the emergency department, are short of breath, and the, the physician is trying to decide, is it safe to send this patient home or better to admit this patient to the overburdened hospital? Um, and so it helps them make safe decisions. So there have been a lot of sort of cool ways that analytics have been able to brought, be brought to bear. 
That's great. We have one last question that came in from uh, Facebook. Um, are there other ways that you might suggest that a person could, um, with supplements or, or other things, improve their immune system uh, beyond vaccination? Um, I, so I don't have a good answer for that. I, I can't put myself forward as an as an expert in um, in using supplements to boost immunity. But the one thing that I will say is that we do have excellent, excellent evidence that the immunization is safe and that the immunization is really, really protective against the virus. Um, and supplements, I, I can't speak to it one way or another. I think that's a, a good note to end on. Ari, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a, a always fascinating conversation. Uh, thanks also to everyone who listened in. Thanks to those who sent in their questions. Uh, to learn more about any of our initiatives or programs or services or to get medical care, of course, uh, please visit providence.org. Uh, make sure to follow us on social media, uh, Providence Health System for LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. And then we're just playing Providence on Twitter. So uh, thanks, everybody, and uh, have a great week. Thank you.